Welcome back to the program. Think for a moment about how much has changed about life, even in our own lifetime. Every day there are new ideas or new products that disrupt existing paradigms. Is it any wonder then that parenthood today is very different than in our parents' or our grandparents' time? Where once children were looked at as economic units to the family, today we live in a child-centric society where the rules, the expectations, and the impact on parents have all changed. Are we better off? Are we having more fun? Are the times more rewarding? The answer is, it depends. That's the landscape that my guest Jennifer Sr. enters into in her wide-ranging look at parenthood entitled All Joy and No Fun. Jennifer Sr. is a contributing editor at New York Magazine, where she writes profiles and cover stories about politics and social science. She's a regular contributor to the New York Times Book Review, and it is my pleasure to welcome Jennifer Sr. to the program to talk about all joy and no fun, the paradox of modern parenthood. Jennifer Sr., thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, and thank you for that wonderfully nuanced uh, introduction. Well, thank it's you. It's not everyone who actually, you know, gets the whole topography of a book in <laughs> one very compact sentence, so I appreciate that. <laughs> well, thank you. One of the things that is at the core of this is that, as, as I said in the introduction, society is different and that we are so much more child-centric, and that life in terms of our own energy and our own resources, both social, cultural, intellectual, and the extent to which we pour so much into our children has to have an impact on so many other parts of our lives. Oh, yeah. I mean, and if you want a quantification of this, uh, which I love to cite, um, American mothers now spend more time with their children than they did in 1965, when most women obviously were not in the workforce. Um, and people are always incredulous when I tell them that. But in 1965, you know, what a woman's emphasis was essentially was on keeping a splendid house. You know, so she, she had to know the difference. I mean, you know, the, what Madison Avenue was telling her was that it was very important for her to know the difference between floor waxes and, you know, oven cleaners and how to get rid of ring around the collar and stuff. Now, what women are being told is that they've got to be perfect mothers, and everybody's houses are filthy. I mean, if you look at the American <laughs> Time Use Survey, no one cleans their houses anymore. But the number of hours that we all spend with our children has just shot way up. Um, and it's, uh, of course, it takes a toll. It takes a toll on everybody's emotional well-being, arguably including the kids, because that's a lot of intensive time from parents. Um, and, you know, the jury is still out on exactly how much immersion play, you know, winds up netting to their benefit um, and, and how much protection, right, and how much, you know, kind of extracurricular stuff that they do. Um, so, but of course, you know, it interferes with couple time. I mean, couples now spend less time with each other than they did in the 1970s by about 25% or 30%. I mean, it's a massive decrease, you know. So, yes, of course, this is like re-kind of organizing and reshaping the contours of our lives. And in many ways, particularly within the context of middle-class families, which is where you focus, what we're doing is we're professionalizing child-rearing. Yes, that is, that is precisely it. And it is, in fact if you think about it, reflected in our language. If you stay at home with your kids now, you are a stay-at-home mom. It used to be in the 60s, if you stayed at home with your kids, you were a housewife. The emphasis was on your house. Now, the emphasis is on mom, stay-at-home mom. And if you walk into any store catering to kids, 
you know, it, the expectation is that you should be able to tell the difference between, you know, say, toys that encourage fine motor skills rather than gross motor skills, those that encourage imaginative play rather than, like, you know, analytical play. I mean, I, you know, you should know what manipulatives are. I mean, when I was a kid, you know, manipulatives were like Legos. That's what we called them. Right. They were blocks, whatever they were, you know. So it is very, very different. And also professionalizing in the sense that, you know, you're kind of stage managing your kids' extracurricular activities. And there are real um, poignant reasons why parents are doing all of this. I mean, I'm not railing against this by any means. I mean, I, what my book does is try and deconstruct all of the economic and cultural forces that have sort of led us to this place. I have a very neutral attitude about whether or not this is a good or a bad thing. You know, I simply note that it is a thing and how it is that we all found ourselves here. So, you know, I mean, I think that a lot of the reasons that we do all this stuff are that we become professional parents and that we become professional chauffeurs taking our kids, you know, here and there and everywhere and all of our creation is, is, you know, anchored in a real economic anxiety that middle-class wages are stagnating, that no one is sure that their kids are going to have a toehold in the middle class the way that they did. I think also the world is changing so rapidly that no one knows exactly what portion of their wisdom will be useful to their kids, and they don't know how to train them for the future. So they just sign them up for everything, hoping that they can, that one thing will be useful and one thing will stick. And that makes everybody really crazy, I think. And so much has been written, so much has been looked at in terms of the impact that all of this is having on kids and, and the impact that helicopter parenting and all the things that go along with it might be having on the on the kids. But in fact, we really haven't looked at the impact that it's having on the parents. Right. And that's what I was interested in. Right. I mean, my whole book is me looking at how kids affect their moms and dads, because if you walk into your local independent bookstore or Barnes and Noble or wherever you buy your books, there, there are so many books about how you can mold and shape and influence your child. I mean, in my in my local Barnes and Noble, the, the child rearing shelves are exactly the same size as the current affairs shelves. Like, they have exactly the same number of books, <laughs> but, which to me is astonishing. Um, and yet, there's like a, really nothing out there that sort of talks about the way kids influence their parents. And people have been looking at this question. They've just been looking at it in different silos of social science for the last 50 years. So what I wanted to do was kind of like weave all of that material together you know, I had to get them, get it all on one shuttle and then move it all through one loom, but you can do it. And I was interested in the effects of kids on parents starting from the time they were born until they were 18. Because exactly, I mean, we, we, we're looking a lot at what helicoptering does to kids and the jury is out. You know, I mean, obviously there seems to be an emergent body of literature suggesting it's not so good, but the mental health toll that it also takes on mothers and fathers, which in turn might affect their parenting, of course, you know, ha has been m underexamined, I would say. There's also the extent to which the two are really integrally related in that the amount of helicopter parenting produces a certain kind of kid or certain results in the child, which then feed back into how the parents react. Oh, totally. It's a feedback loop. That is exactly right. I mean, I think that if you set a certain precedent, and I'll tell you, it's not just helicoptering. I mean, first of all, let me let me just say, uh, I'm not going to sit here and like slag on helicopter parenting. Mm -hmm. What I do in my book 
it explained how we, you know, again, mm-hmm. how we got here. And just to briefly point out, I mean, one of the reasons that we hover, I mean, there are numbers, a number, but I'll just list a few things. First of all, um, people are irrationally afraid of things like kidnapping because kidnapping stories drive 24-7 news cycles. You know, you see a lot about them, and they are disproportionate. Um, Crimes against children are at an all-time low, but no one feels that way when they see a lot of kidnapping stories on TV. Also, public sex offender registries have made this very hard. There's now so much transparency in these kind of um, crimes, which is a good thing in a way, but also fuels parents' anxiety. So people spend a lot of time hovering. They're very afraid to send their kids outdoors, right? So that's one way that we helicopter, or one reason. Another reason is that there's more sprawl. We live far apart from one another. So sending your kid out into the street isn't necessarily feasible if your nearest neighbors are far from you, which is increasingly, you know, as we sprawl, the case. So some of that is a reason. We are now signing our kids up for more activities because we are, you know, anxious about having kind of 21st century optimized children. So, you know, that means a lot of driving. So is that helicoptering or is that just like anxiously trying to get your kid up and ready for like the world to come? It depends on what your definition is, right? So I talk about a lot of those things. And I think that, you know, there's reasons to think that like that feed Latin back loop, you know, it exists for a reason and it produces a certain kind of kid who then can't tolerate boredom because their parents have been, you know, organizing their activities from birth. And then the parents feel like they have to entertain their kids because their kids can't tolerate boredom. And that becomes kind of a self-perpetuating cycle. And mothers feel like they have to sit there and really be involved with their kids because they're still getting mixed messages about being in the workforce, you know, and people are still ambivalent about how much they'd like women to work. You know, they have very mixed feelings about that, which are reflected in very contradictory and poignant kind of strange statistics and, you know, sightings and polls and stuff that I can get into if you want. There is also beyond that a kind of metric way of looking at this, and we may not all verbalize it or we may not think about it very often, but there's this sense that coming back to the statistics you were talking about before, we spend so much time, we make such a commitment, we pour so much effort into this, we want to see some kind of payoff in terms of the success of that child. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, you're right. And I mean, I guess schools are, of course, playing their role in having no shortage of metrics now to measure a successful child. And there, there's no shortage, certainly, of standardized tests that kids take. And, I, you know, I mean, this is something that parents, again, sort of drive themselves around the twist to do. In my book, I spend a great deal. So I tell this through lots of families. I don't just dive into data. I I spend a lot of time in Minnesota with three different families, and then I go to Texas for a great deal of this book and spend time with about eight different families, and you get to know them well. And in one, I'll never forget, there was this one mother who was just apoplectic about this one test, not apoplectic, I mean, she was rightfully concerned about this one test that her third grader had to take, right? So in second grade, She started paying a tutor to make sure she could see tangible results for this thing. I mean, if I just think back to my own childhood, America just wasn't as competitive back then. It was starting to be, for sure. But it was nothing like that. I mean, my mom had, like, absolutely no familiarity with my homework. 
She had no familiarity with my college essays. She certainly, there were no metrics other than the occasional report card telling her how I was doing. There certainly weren't statewide tests in third grade that were particularly meaningful. They might have been administered every year, but it's not like my mom knew the answers. You know, it's different. It's different in so many respects. The other thing that's different, and, and you talk about this in the context of so many of the families that you talk to, is that the stages of childhood produce different kinds of responses, that toddlers and preschoolers create one set of situations, whereas there is a period sort of in between that and adolescence where there's in some ways a little less pressure, and then, of course, adolescence creates a whole different set of problems and issues. Exactly. And adolescence was, in a funny way, my favorite chapter to report. Um, my kids only six. My stepkids were adolescents when I arrived on the scene, so I had some sense of what it was like to have adolescents around, but as a stepmother, you have a different perspective, right? So I couldn't really trust that. So to me, that was the most interesting research dive that I did. And even more interesting was sort of what I found which was, this is based on the work of a fellow named Lawrence Steinberg, who is really like one of the preeminent guys in this field. And he's interesting because he has not only looked at adolescents, but how, how adolescent children affect their parents. So his work is like bi-directional. He looks at how parents affect their kids and how kids affect their parents. So what he found, which blew my doors off, is that adolescents wind up being in some ways a bigger crisis for parents than for children, which at first made no sense to me because we think of adolescence as being this very turbulent time. But his point is that it is turbulent, and there are a certain number of kids who feel the changes of adolescence very acutely. But a lot of adolescents, while they feel things intensely, they kind of go through adolescence in a haze. Whereas parents, about 40% of them experience a real drop-off in mental health because their kids are pulling away, as they should be doing, and suddenly parents are looking around and going, okay, where can I draw my strength from? And that's when, for the first time in a very long time, they have to go, oh, do I like my marriage? Because my kid's not giving me support anymore. My kid's off with his own friends. Hmm, how do I like my spouse? How do I like my job? How do I like my hobbies? How do I like my church or synagogue or mosque? How do I like... You know, I mean, all these things that one uses, that one also relies on for support, if you don't like them, <laughs> your adolescence is really going to, your adolescent is going to unmask that. We're also beginning to understand, and maybe this will be helpful over time to parents, we're understanding more about the adolescent brain and that it's not just a collection of raging hormones, but there really are some, some clear-cut biological and, and physiological underpinnings going on. Exactly. Uh, I'm so glad you brought that up. So the brain science of adolescence, I think parents can really use this. You know, it's, it's really useful to know about it. Um, I mean, my book is so far from an advice book, but if you squint, you know, because I'm writing <laughs> about parents, not about kids, but if you squint you will learn a lot about how to think about your adolescent just by knowing about adolescent brain chemistry. Because it turns out that the prefrontal cortex in human beings continues developing right until we're about 25. So what adolescents kind of are in a funny way is they have very um, sensitive accelerator pedals but very weak brakes. 
Because the prefrontal cortex is your braking system. It is what's responsible for impulse control and executive function, you know, like planning, thinking things through. And it's not that adolescents can't think and can't plan and can't reason. They can. Right before adolescence, they've had a big growth spurt in their brain that makes it possible for them to do this. But they also have so much dopamine washing around in their brains, which is the feel-good hormone, that they are on a massive quest to feel good all the time. And they totally overestimate how good the reward will feel if they take a risk. And that, in some ways, is what it kind of explains the crucial difference between a grown-up brain and an adolescent brain. Grown-ups look at a risk and go, hmm, yeah, I don't know, though. I mean, like, if that doesn't go well, yikes. Whereas an adolescent is totally fixated on the reward they will get, disproportionately fixated, because their brains are just, you know, like spilling over with dopamine. There is also the evolutionary biological part of it that you talk about with adolescents separating, particularly from their mothers, and the impact that that has. Right. So adolescents, I mean, this is the stipulation of many people who study it, that one of the reasons kids might take kind of reckless risks at that stage um, is because from an evolutionary point of view, what you're doing is you're breaking away from your family. That's when, that's, you know, when do it, you know, you go out foraging on your own and that can be dangerous. So you have to kind of, you have to be equipped to do that. You have to be willing to take certain risks if you're going to break from your family. Now, of course, we shelter our children for forever, you know, long past adolescence or at least, well, you know, through college at any rate and often into the late 20s, you know, particularly during our session. So you've got kids who are sort of taking risks under your own roof and doing all sorts of things, you know, that are kind of not necessarily so wise based on the materials they can find in your garage. But it has this effect on parents of, you know, parents, first of all, have to be the nags telling them not to do stuff. And mothers in ad- during the adolescent years are actually disproportionately the nags. They are the ones, not fathers. Everybody thinks it's dads. The mothers, if you look at national longitudinal surveys of thousands of people, it is moms and not dads who function as the disciplinarians during the adolescent years. So they have, like, the unwelcome job of being the bad cop. They're the ones saying, you know, who is that friend of yours? Do I know them? Can I have their number? They're the ones regulating both TV time and video game time. This can be very tense, right? Um, And I think the kind of worst combination, unfortunately, is mothers and daughters. That's been replicated in many studies. It seems that same-sex relationships are fraught in adolescence, but it's a particularly fraught combination if you're a mom and a daughter. And then you have the, the result of that is the feelings that come after the separation when the child goes off either into adulthood, college, or whatever it may be, and you talk about fathers feeling sadder than mothers at that point. Right, exactly. I'm so glad you remember that. Yeah, I mean, that, again, is a really interesting finding, and it's been replicated for many years. Um, and I think the reason is that Mothers, because they, look, they do twice as much child care still as fathers, even though fathers are very involved these days. But on average, according to the American Time Use Survey, they do more child care. And, as I've just said, they do more disciplinary work. So they have been alive to the emotional undercurrents in their house for so many years. And, you know, played the role, which is a difficult role, of being the family nag for so long. And this is, again, these are 
based on national surveys, they might not apply to individual families. It might be different in your listeners' families. This is just looking as a whole, you know, in the general population. So mothers in general have been alive to these kind of emotional, you know, cross-currents for so long that by the time a child leaves, they're tired, you know, <laughs> and one can't really underestimate the hedonic power of relief, of just feeling like they can finally exhale. And there's this one family, I mean, because I tell this all, as I said, through families, not just through studies, because that would be boring, but um, there was this one mother who confessed to me in this very, like, amazing and poignant and raw kind of way how much easier it was for her to get along with her daughter now that her daughter was launched and in college, you know, that their relationship had really significantly improved. Whereas her husband, who was sitting right next to her, was looking at me and saying, I really miss her terribly, you know? I mean, it was just different. And the mother, of course, played the role of the family, like, tough guy. So it it was, you know, and they were having fights right in front of me about discipline, I mean, which is another interesting thing about sitting in with families. Like, you get to watch in real time as couples argue about these things, mm. and they're very real and, you know, bar- you know, barbed and raw, which was, to me, part of what made reporting the book very interesting. Is the answer, or unanswer, I guess I should say, to more fun in all of this? A greater integration of all of these respective parts of our lives, is that what we haven't gotten to yet? Because when we look at personal and family and work and adolescence, that that everything still seems siloed in its own way. It's totally true. It's very hard to integrate them, though. I mean, yes, yes, of course that would help immensely. But, I mean, the United States is one of eight known countries that has no paid maternity leave policy. Like, let's just start with that, right? So these things are sort of siloed because it's not like our employers or our national policies are necessarily making it easier to integrate them. You know, if we could lean back from the workforce and spend time with our families and know that our jobs were not in jeopardy, it would probably be a recipe for, like, a slightly easier, you know, family life, right? And that's definitely true for dads, too, who, by the way, report more work-life conflict than their wives do now. I mean, which is amazing. If fathers are reporting work-life conflict, it suggests to me that their employers are not yet being flexible enough to, like, figure out a way to let them integrate family, you know, that, like, they're still insisting on keeping men in their silos, right? And that's that's tough. So it would require, I think, Rethinking these things both within the organizations where people work, also nationally, although, you know, it's very hard to get national support for this kind of thing. Um, I mean, just to give you another example, in every single state, people spend more on child care than they do on rent. In every single state, there are no exceptions. So just imagine if, like, our child care needs were slightly better integrated, you know, into so that people felt like, they had childcare arrangements that were affordable and where they, you know, very few people, a, a strikingly small percentage of people feel like their childcare providers are like family. And, you know, that's, again, it's a silo, right? That means that your kid's going off somewhere where you're not feeling 100% calm about it. And you can imagine a different world in which if people had more time to take off from their jobs or if child care providers were better vetted, you know, more licensing were required, that these would be easier things. 
I mean, if I were king, that's how I would do it. Mm -hmm. You know, but I'm not king. I'm just a writer. (laughs) The the other part of this, as we've touched on a little bit, is the economic overlay to all of this. And part of what drives so much from Baby Einstein to, to the college essays that you talked about before is this fear of what the world is going to be like for these kids going forward in this sense that average isn't going to be good enough, as we're told all the time. Yeah, I mean, and that's an amazing trend. You know, in the 1950s, which is when, like, the sheltered American childhood started, it was okay to have a, like, sort of average kid. It really was. I mean, there were still unions. There was still such a thing as a family wage. Income inequality was at record lows. The United States was not, like, a ferociously competitive place yet, right? So, I mean, my grandfathers managed post-war without college educations to provide reasonable upbringings for their children who had, who then went to, you know, free public universities and managed to create lives for me, right? So, I mean, this worked. But increasingly, I mean, by like the 1970s or 80s, I mean, things just went kerfluey. I mean, wages started to stagnate for the middle class. Um, You know, we had these kind of, I mean, we had this kind of global world suddenly. We had the Thomas Friedman world is flat kind of world, certainly by the 90s. And, you know, so by the time I went to high school in the 80s, I was told that if I didn't know Japanese, I would be out of luck. And by the way, that was wrong. And right now we think that, not we, I, there are people in my middle class cohort who think that their kids have to know Mandarin right. because that's what it looks like right now. But we don't know if that's right either. Like, but we do know that the world is globalizing and rapidly changing in these ways that we can't stay on top of. So everybody just tries to game it as best as they can. And I'm deeply sympathetic to this because what are you going to do? You can't see into the future. And the future is changing at this like crazy pace much more quickly than it was for our grandparents, right? So um, parenting, you know, has absorbed some of those stresses because, you know, we're trying to figure out what future we're preparing our kids for. Finally, of course, the other question when we think about joy and fun and all these other things is what our expectations of happiness are today as parents and what that really means. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. So, you know, I have two chapters in my book that talk all about joy. And I think here are a couple of things I would say. First of all, happiness was not anybody's priority really until the 20th century, period, you know? So, like, that's the first thing to know, that happiness was this kind of, I mean, once people started living well, it became this miraculous thing we all aspired to. I think happy children weren't something that we thought about until the 1970s. That's when it first emerged as like this big kind of goal, you know, was the free to be you and me era and all that stuff. Okay, fine. So let's first of all just note that those in and of themselves weren't even goals. What was important to parents of previous generations was to make sure that parents, that, that your children were ethical. But now if you want to talk about joy and what makes us happy, I think Parents who walk into parenthood and think, oh, this is going to make me so happy, they have to think about happiness in a different way. What parenthood does is add complexity. It adds many highs and many lows. It adds emotional richness, and it adds, like, all sorts of, I mean, you find all sorts of, un, you know, explored 
terrain in your heart that you didn't know was there, all sorts of anxieties you didn't know could exist, all sorts of, you know, delight and pride that you didn't know could exist, but all sorts of anguish and disappointments that you might not have known could exist. So it just opens you up to a wider range of feeling. But joy is this kind of transcendent feeling, and that is what children give you, which is this kind of sense of just deep connection to another human being, one that is so profound, so profound, that the idea of losing it is intolerable, that losing that connection. And in fact, there's one psychiatrist who I just love, who lives near you, I think. Um, His name is George Valiant. He argues that joy is harder to tolerate than sadness because intertwined with joy is the idea that you might lose the person you love. That, you know, just one click away is this notion of grief. And in fact, he says that joy is grief inside out. And I think that's why every parent watches a tragedy like Newtown or something and feels it viscerally. Every parent has had that fear that they will not, you know, know, that their kids, even if it's just that their kids are going to leave in the sense that they're going to leave the house or that they're going to grow older. But, I mean, the bond that you feel to your child, that kind of joy is kind of immeasurable, you know? I mean, it has no equal or rival, at least in my life. I mean, other people find joy in other things, and that's fabulous. But for me, it's my kid. Jennifer Sr., the book is All Joy and No Fun, The Paradox of Modern Parenthood, just out from Echo. Jennifer, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.